means to either conform, comply, or act in accordance with. To literally imitate or to copy. So then why do we think when Jesus said, follow me, he meant raise a hand, sign a card, or show up at church once a week? When Jesus said, follow me, he wanted people who imitated him, who conformed to him, who looked like him. He wanted us to drop everything, radically change our lives, and yield to the unknown. He wanted us to follow, to go where he goes, to do what he does, because he's bringing his kingdom, and the only thing he asks is, will we follow? been, over the past two weeks, working through essentially what Jesus means by the phrase, follow me. When he calls his disciples, he gives this calling to follow me. And we've been building the definition of what being a Christian means according to Jesus. Now, in our first week, we established the difference between a personal piety, follow the rules type of faith and the faith that Jesus calls us to. There's a huge difference, and unfortunately, many of us growing up in faith have been taught this personal, do this and don't do that type of faith. So, in order to reshape our thinking on the gospel, here is what we have drawn from Jesus so far. We've been building a definition of what Jesus says that a Christian is. And so, so far... We have established this. A Christian is someone who is following Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand something as a disclosure here. I am not preaching about how somebody comes to Christ, how someone gets saved. In theology, we call that justification, how someone is justified. I'm not talking about justification at all. I'm talking about the process that we are living in today called sanctification. Essentially, what this sermon series is addressing is what Jesus is calling his followers to look like here on earth. So when Jesus says, follow me, how do we go about doing that? What kind of followers is Jesus calling us to be right here and right now? Now, many Christians, even actually those who are not Christian, have assumed and even been taught that following Jesus, that being a Christian, is all about our personal ethic. That Christianity is about building a certain ethical way of living, and in order to have a Christian ethic, we build a list of what is right and what is wrong according to the Bible. And we use this phrase, I love this phrase, the Bible says, and then we establish using a passage in scripture, what we believe is right and anything outside of that right, we deem as wrong. This approach to faith 
I actually think has really caused a, a devastating side effect to the way that we do faith. It's this side effect that has often gotten us the label of the H word. You ready? Hypocrite. It's the, it's the side effect that's gotten us to be called hypocrites simply because even the best Christian on earth can't possibly live the list ethic life per, perfectly. Even the best Christian in the world cannot live a list ethic faith perfectly. The side effect, I believe, is our deep need to always be right. Have you ever noticed that when you're talking to Christians and their opinion on Scripture, their opinion is the right opinion? Their interpretation is the right interpretation? I believe that the Bible says right very differently than the way we often see it. And I I think in history, there's been massive disputes over being right. I don't think many people would argue with me that the the concept of being right has caused Christians to kill other Christians because one camp believes that they're right and their right is better than others' right. Do you follow me so far? Let me help you. Being right is not always right. I'm going to get you to say that with me. Being right is not always right. There's a difference, folks, between focusing on being right and focusing on being a follower of Jesus. This is where the personal piety, ethics list, faith falls short. I believe it's why Christians struggle to live the way Jesus calls us to live, and I believe that that is why we're often called hypocrites. And so as I studied this historical kind of us versus them way of doing faith, that mentality, it didn't take long when it comes to the New Testament because it's saturated with this us versus them stories that address this deep need to always be right. And there's a specific group that Jesus is constantly calling hypocrites. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to study this and kind of dig into what is it that Jesus means by this, let's start with the people who he often refers to as the hypocrites. And so as I started to study this, I noticed that I think a lot of this is rooted in the the Jewish way of spiritual formation. You see, the Jewish people in Jesus' day would recite a very specific liturgy, and they would use this liturgy, uh, they would recite it in the morning, and they would recite it in the evening every single day. And this liturgy was called the Shema. We uh, are probably familiar with the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, this is the Shema. This is what they would recite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Jewish religion, folks, was shaped by the command to love God. It was a loving God-focused religion, a love God spirituality. 
To them, the only way to show God you loved him was to live the Torah, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called it the law. Now, get this. The law consisted of 613 rules to follow. So if you're going to live the law, you have to consistently follow these 613 rules. This rule following was what shaped the Jewish definition of loving God. If you truly wanted to be right with God, you had to follow the rules. Now, it left headway because it understood that we live in sinful world and we have this sinful nature. And so if you messed up a rule, there was a ceremonial way to become right with God again. You had to just follow what the Torah said about making the right kind of sacrifice or following a proper cleansing ritual. Now, as human beings struggling with our sinful nature, it was a natural reaction for these folks to begin to study these 613 laws because they felt that if we're going to show God that we love him, we got to live his commands. We got to live the Shema, and the Shema is these 613 laws. So they began to analyze them. They began to study them. They began to tear them apart. And they began to discern how best to live out the Torah without breaking it. You see, one sure, safe method of doing this is to make more laws in order to clarify big idea laws. So I have 613 laws. Now I need to unpack and build little laws around the big laws. Take the laws and develop laws around how to live the laws. You want me to say it again? Take the laws and develop laws around how to live the laws. They actually had a name for this in the Hebraic language. They actually called this a halakha. So a halakha was a law that was built around a bigger law. It was a way to describe how to go about living these 630 laws. So they had, sorry, 613. So they had 613 laws, and then they had a whole list of halakas. How to follow those laws, how to be, make the Torah clearer, how to make it more livable. So Jewish scholars would essentially assess the 613 laws given in the Torah, and come up with other rules to follow so you could make sure that you were following the original rules. And to them, this was the logical way to learn to love God, follow his rules really well. And the people in Jesus' time who became the law police were the Pharisees. Because if you're going to follow laws, somebody has to police that to happen. And so the Pharisees became those people. They were the ones who Jesus, as we read in the Gospels, had very, very, very little patience for. Remember in my first sermon uh, in this series, I pointed out that Jesus has a lot of patience for those who are willing to admit their struggles, those who know that they are not perfect, but he has very little patience for those who think they are righteous by following the rules or by being right. Listen to what Jesus says. 
This makes me laugh before I even read it. Listen to what Jesus says when he is describing what the Pharisees are doing to other people. In Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to bounce around a little bit just to give you some highlights because this is a long section of scripture. He says this about these law-keeping Pharisees. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then Jesus says at verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, listen to this. I'm just reading the Bible to you folks, okay? You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. It's all about conversion, converting to Judaism. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. When you succeed at converting someone, what your rules, your regulations, your ethics-based laws are doing are making them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Listen, you blind guides. Anybody want a blind guide? You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. <laughs> it's awesome, eh? Can you imagine if that was Jesus talking about you? I think it's obvious what Jesus thinks of those who need to be right all the time. Based on these passages, I would say that it frustrates him just a little bit, or a lot. So much so that Jesus seems to actually accuse them, and this is the scary part. He's accusing them of leading people down a path in their faith that is actually impossible to follow. That they become, that they're laying on people's shoulders a burden. Jesus doesn't like, I am right, you are wrong approach to following him. I'm going to say that again. Jesus does not like the I am right, you are wrong approach to following him. Instead, Jesus gives us a revised version of the Shema. It's the Jesus Shema. And in the Gospel of Mark, starting at chapter 12, Mark recants when a story 
in his story, when one of the teachers of the law tries to trick Jesus, you see this throughout the four gospels where these teachers of the law, scribes, the Pharisees are always like trying to trick Jesus into saying something he shouldn't have said. It's kind of like, you know, taking a video clip from one of my sermons and saying, that's what he means, but not listening to the whole context, right? They're always trying to uh, trick him into saying things that he uh, would be against the law so that they can then uh, have a reason to kill him. They found one, didn't they? Listen to what Jesus says to this guy who asks him, out of the 613 laws, which is the most important? Trick question. Jesus answers with this. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus adds one element to it there. And then he says this. He's not done. See, he's quoted the Shema, but he's not done. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Notice Jesus' revision here. It changes what being right means to someone who follows him. Being right for Jesus meant a kind of Bible reading, a kind of theology, a kind of behavior that led to loving God and loving others. To Jesus, if you read your Bible, if you prayed, if you went in their context to synagogue or in our context to church, but weren't becoming a more loving person, something was wrong. In Matthew's gospel, this same uh, recount of this passage where Jesus quotes the Shema and adds these pieces to it, listen to how Matthew sees Jesus ending this. He says, all the law... 613 rules, and the prophets, everything the prophets have said on top of that, hang on these two commandments. In other words, if you loved God, the way your love becomes obvious was to lead to, leading, to loving others. The only way to live the 613 laws was to follow two commandments, to love God and to love others. Everything that we do, everything that they do in their faith has to be through the window of these two things, loving God and loving others. Jesus took 613 laws and narrowed them down to two. Look at the difference. Build the helicots, the laws around the laws around the laws, or just live these two things. Teachers of the law, they were adding laws to the laws and Jesus subtracted laws and summarized the whole Torah with two commands of love. Now, I want to dig into that, go figure, a little bit, and I want to look at another story in the Gospel of Luke. You might be pretty familiar with this story. At the top of your Bible, it probably says, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to point out a few things in this passage that often we miss because we don't understand the historical contexts around it. 
So chapter 10, starting at verse 25 of Luke's gospel account, says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So here we go again. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a fair question, isn't it? What do I have to do to live forever? People often ask you that. What, what, could, Carrie, could you just tell me what I need to do to live forever? Probably not eat what I eat. <laughs> He's speaking spiritually, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus says. How do you read it? So now Jesus is testing the tester. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Because you guys all seem to read it slightly differently. He answered, so listen to what this expert in the law says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, not Jesus, the expert of the law. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I I respect that. I think that there's good clarity in that. If I'm going to love my neighbor, I probably need to know who my neighbor is. Now, my neighbors had a party on Friday night, and so I'm having a hard time loving my neighbors right now because I just wanted to sleep. But maybe your neighbors are wonderful people, and you assume that your neighbor is the neighbor that Jesus is talking about, but it's actually kind of is and kind of isn't. So in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged its wounds and pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So now Jesus turns to the teacher of the law, and he says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, what God really wants for each of us folks is for us to love God and show our love for God by loving others the way God loves them. That's a key phrase, by loving others the way God loves them. Jesus shows us that the love of God, Jesus shows us God's love by dying on the cross. It's this sacrificial love, this willingness to give oneself up for another. 
And we're called as followers of Jesus to follow his example, to offer this kind of sacrificial love. Now, the story Jesus tells us about the Good Samaritan gives us actually the answer to the next part of our definition. But before we get into that, I want to ask you something. Did you notice something interesting in this story about the priest and the Levite? That's my trick question to you. A lot of us read this and we go, yeah, like the priest and the Levite, they weren't very nice to this guy. They could have helped him out because the good person, the good Samaritan, uh, we have good Samaritan laws, right? The good Samaritan, he, he helped out and the priest and the Levite, they're just, they're just jerks. I want, I want to point something out for you and you got to understand the Jewish ways. Everything I just taught you up to this point. Their actions were actually motivated by being right. The Torah, as they were taught, didn't allow for a priest or a Levite to touch or go anywhere near a dying or dead body. So by moving to the other side of the road, they were following their right interpretation of the law. They couldn't help this guy because they would be at risk of breaking the rules. Did you see that? When you read this text, did you notice that they are actually living the Jewish faith properly by their 613 rules? They cannot help this guy because they would be considered unclean. So they cross the road. This is a perfect example of the contrast between loving God by being right in one's observance of the Torah or Scripture and loving God by being right in extending love to others. It took a Samaritan who by the Pharisees, and I don't mean this in a crass way, were considered low-life, half-breed, law-breaking sinners. See, they were half-Jewish and half-Greek. They were like the low of the low. The Pharisees hated them. And it took one of them to show the love that God calls us to. And so Jesus, in the Good Samaritan story, was actually breaking the law. The deep need to be right in religion stopped the priest or the Levite from being loving. To Jesus, if you interpret the law in a way that stops you from loving others, then you have interpreted it wrong. You've missed the point of what loving God does to someone's heart. Any religion that shows hate toward anyone, in Jesus' perspective, is not a right religion. When you think of the kingdom of God, which I taught on last week, and you hear me talk about all the time, the first word that, you should, that should come to mind is not justification, sanctification, or even salvation. It's love. 
In the kingdom life that Jesus teaches, he is calling us to a life that is shaped by love, a life that filters all of our Bible, a love that filters all of our Bible reading, all of our prayers. We build a lens of loving others, and that's how we read and interpret the texts. In John 13, Jesus gives a new command. Chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. Now, he doesn't just stop there, though. Because we have this, like, sinful nature kind of way of loving people, which has, like, things attached to it. Like, I can only love you if you love me in return. He says, love one another as I have loved you. I gave my life for you. So love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now listen to what he says. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. He doesn't say by following 613 rules, you'll automatically be my disciple then. He says the lens is, they will know you by your love. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus calls us to a life shaped by love, not by being right. If being right means you can't be loving, then you have missed the point of this entire book. But not only are we called to love, see, I'm not done. Not only are we called to love, we are called to love those we find the hardest to love. Those who think differently than us. What do we do in our culture? Right? We gather at Tim Hortons with a group of people who become griping people just like us. Right? The kids are ruining the farm. Yeah, my kid is too. What's your kid doing? Same as mine. This is what we do. We find like-minded people and we rally together with one another and we complain. And, and, then, and then we start to give our opinions and our advice. It's awesome. Our right interpretation of how we should deal with our son who's ruining the farm. We're very good at loving those who think the same way as us, but not so good at loving others who think differently. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. He says, if you love those who love you, because you can only love and be loved in return, that's the only way love works, right? I'm being really sarcastic. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? I'll remind the conference of that. <laughs> With our mortgage? No, I'm kidding. That's not exactly what he means. Anyway, even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. 
Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. When we live in this kind of love, enemy love, then we live in the kingdom society that Jesus came to create. So now, we have another line in our understanding, another phrase in our building of what the Christian life, what Jesus believes the Christian life looks for. So a Christian is one who follows Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of God, a life of loving God and loving others. This means that rules of ethics don't shape our faith. How many people are like, what? Of course, it's all about ethics. My list of do's and don'ts, if I do the do's and I don't do the don'ts, then I'd be fine, right? If I don't dance, I won't have sex. That's a helicot, a rule around the rule. Our willingness to show the love of God to everyone is how people will know who we are, not our ethics. Now listen to me, but a grace-filled love that drives our ethics. There's a huge difference of just trying to be ethical based on a list of do's and don'ts or offering a grace-filled love that then shapes your ethic. I really need you to see the difference between the two. And so, I'm getting like an intro there. So ask yourself this question. Am I loving those who are difficult to love? Am I loving those who are difficult to love? This is the heart of the kingdom of God. The worship team can join me. Those who follow the ways of Jesus show the love of God to those who are difficult to love. 